I want to, first of all, kind of get a little bit of a background. Uh, we're going to go through this pretty quickly, so you'll see a slide. You're already, for the most part, probably familiar with this. There's the arrow pointing to Philadelphia. Uh, the next slide, what you'll see is a little picture. This is kind of some of the ancient ruins of the city. Not entirely sure what those big arches are. Maybe it's an old aqueduct. I don't know. Um, um, for some reason, all the pictures that I found on Google are of this like exact spot. So I don't know, it must be a really popular one, or maybe the city's completely gone. Um, but that big white tower in the back, that is newer. That's from a Byzantine church, so much later on. So it's obviously new. Um, the city was an important city. Um, it was called the Gate to the East. It was an area that was kind of on a major trade route that if you were to go through the city, it would take you off into the east. It had this sort of significant role. And one of the main important purposes of the city um, was in some ways to kind of proclaim the, the message of Greek Roman culture, where they use, usually would go from this city and venture off into kind of the Wild West, off into the east, off into other parts of Asia Minor. And it would be into those areas that they would go and they would teach uh, Greek and Roman thought and Plato and Aristotle and Greek language and all of the typical things that we would kind of identify among Greek culture. It, was, it held sort of that special unique door or unique uh, name as being the door. Um, the other thing that you'll notice the name, Philadelphia. Some of us might obviously are familiar with the city in our state or I'm sorry, in our country called Philadelphia, you know, the home of Rocky Bobo and a great sandwich, that this is a different Philadelphia. This Philadelphia was the place in modern day uh, Turkey, and it was the place that in that particular day uh, was named after a king, and he had a brother, and they basically had a special bond with each other. They cared for each other, they had a special relationship, and they loved one another. Therefore, it got the name Philadelphia, or brotherly love. Uh, the city was actually demolished in around 17 AD. Obviously, Jesus was alive, maybe would have felt some of the bit of the earthquake, but it demolished this particular city, and it was completely destroyed. And so Rome came in and actually repaired, restored the city, and uh, as sort of a tribute back to Rome, they changed the name from Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea, which means new Caesar, new Caesarea. So anyway, it's kind of devoted to the Caesar of that particular era, and uh, it was kind of a significant place. Um, it's also a spot that had a significant Jewish population. However, the Jewish population in this city was definitely aggressive and hostile towards the Christian community. So maybe they started out sort of uh, in unity, but at some point that unity turned into kind of division where they actually found themselves somewhat persecuted or shunned or kicked out. All of this type of stuff which we looked at right now will actually play into the text. So with that, I want to kind of jump into the text and take a look at verse 7. It says this, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Jesus basically makes a statement. As the next slide, we'll take a look. As he basically gives three titles about himself. One, he describes himself as the Holy One, or hagios, which means separated or unique. And that's what you need to understand with, about, about God. God is unique. He's different. He's different than us. Uh, he is God. He doesn't think the way that we think. There might be some similarities or crossovers, but for the most part, God is uniquely different than us. And the word that they would use for different or unique is the word hagios. And we translate it as holy. Sometimes in our context, in our culture, we think of holy as being, you know, somebody who acts a particular 
way or acts of particular style. But in that culture, if you didn't have any arms, you were holy. Right? You were unique, all right? Because you didn't have any arms. Everybody else had arms. You were armless, all right? So you would be holy or hagios in that particular day. In the context here, God is holy because he's completely different than humanity. He describes himself as such. And true one, he's the true one. And he goes on to say, he who has the key of David. This verse, no doubt, was sort of taken by Jesus from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read the passage to you. It says that in that day, I'll call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hekiah, and I'll clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and he will commit your authority to his hand. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he will open, and no one will shut, and he will shut, and no one will open. So there's two words I want you to notice, or one word and one phrase. The first word is uh, authority. So if you're kind of wondering, like, what is the key of the house of David uh, represent? What does it speak of? And when Jesus says, I have the key of David, what is he talking about? Well, in the other context here in, this, in the verse, uh, he speaks of authority. So the idea of those who have the key is those who have the authority. Now, if you're fifth grader or sixth grader, or you remember when you were fifth and sixth grade, I do. You remember the man on campus that had the most supreme omnipotence was the custodian, right? He was the guy that for a hundred feet away, you can hear him walking down the aisle because you hear this ominous cling-clang of his keys, right? And, hello, right? All right, just want to make sure. Uh, I know it's so late and everyone's tired. But the point that I want to make is that this guy has got all the power, now, you might think the principal is the guy that's got the power, but it's not. The custodian's got the power. He's got all the keys. He opens all the doors, especially the ball door, right? You need a basketball. You go to the custodian. He's the man, all right? You need toilet paper. He's got the key to even the toilet paper roll thing. He's got all the keys to everything, everything. He's got the keys, uh, which signifies the fact he really has the authority. So that's what Jesus is saying. Saying, in the same way this guy Eliakim uh, was given the keys to the household of David, so Jesus also has the keys, and he has the authority to do whatever he wants. I think in the context, it's very significant. Because Jesus' point is, I have the keys of the house of David, I am the one that holds these keys, and I open and no one shuts, and I shut and no one opens. I think he's talking about entrance into God's kingdom. Again, here's what's happening. You got a Jewish sect of people living in that culture that are basically setting up certain rules and parameters and saying, unless you abide by these rules and regulations, you can't be a part of our club. It was very self-righteous, very condemnatory towards anybody that would not follow suit. If you've ever been a part of a church where there's all these rules and regulations and legalistic type things, like you can't wear your hair down, you can't wear makeup, you gotta dress a certain way. Sunday you have to dress up wearing a sport coat. I wore this because I love you and I wanted to look nice on our first day, but I don't care what you wear to church, to be really frank with you. If you've been a part of something like that, you realize that the first moment you begin to break some of these traditional rules, you rub everybody the wrong way. They get mad. And you begin to feel like you need to be kicked out of that place or you don't, you're not welcome there. And that's what happened to these people. They felt no longer welcome and they were kicked out. They were no longer a part of the religious system there in the city of Philadelphia. Brotherly love, which is, again, a little bit of an irony. 
they're not showing any love in the city where it's all about love. And what Jesus is basically saying is that I love you. I love you. I have the keys of the kingdom. They're not the ones that have the authority of telling who's in and who's out. It's me. I have that ability. It's only me. I have that authority. You have to understand that. That's what Jesus is driving at. And that would come really with a very huge, significant amount of weightiness in their hearts. Can you imagine being somebody that was kicked out of the, not just religious system, but also the sort of social economic system as well? Because back in that day, everything was run through guilds. So if you had a guild, you worked for a particular living, and you were part of a social economic type of a system, and you were booted out of that system, nobody's going to buy from you anymore. No one's going to support you anymore. No one's going to run to you or help you anymore if you have needs if your wife has a baby and you, you need some help, no one's going to help you because you've been kicked out of that religious slash social slash economic system. And Jesus is basically saying, look, they may have kicked you out, but at the end of the day, I'm the one that has the final supreme authority to decide who's in and who's not. And I open doors, no one shuts them. I close doors, no one opens them because I am alone the sole authority. Jesus goes on and he makes that point. And what he goes on next to basically point out in verse 8, he says, I know your works. So the next little section he's going to jump into, kind of wrap things up here, he's going to basically give them praise. He's going to tell them, uh, he's going to commend them, some things that they're doing really good. And to be quite frank with you, this is really a great church, a really great church. Going through difficult times, not once did Jesus say anything negative, negative about them. Last week we looked at Sardis. Really bad church. It was so bad that Jesus basically says, unless you wake up, you're going to die. That's how bad, that's how horrible things had gotten in Sardis. Now, by and large, I don't think in any way, like Calvary Slow is even close to like that. But the reality is, some of you might be. You might be so sort of numb in your emotions and your affections towards God that you got to wake up. Otherwise, I think what Jesus would say is, you're going to die. You're going to die. And you're going to end up being a cancer to the rest of everybody else around you. But the point that he's basically saying to this church here is that you guys are a really great church. You guys love my word. You take care of things. And he points out, he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. One of the things that Jesus points out, he says, you guys have just kept my word. I think what he's referring to there, when we talk about keeping the word, it's kind of a little phrase that kind of Christians can use. They're like, if we just want to keep God's word, well, what does that mean? I think it kind of means at least one, we receive it, meaning we hear it. We're open to receiving it. When God speaks, when the Bible is open, we want to hear it. To be really frank with you, when I hear about churches that nobody brings Bibles to, I get really bummed about that. I'm like, what are you going to church for? What are you going to hear? What is there going to be spoken I mean, a church without God's word, like, what do you have? Social club? I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I really, to be really frank, I don't know how to even categorize that. But Jesus is basically saying to this church, he's like, I'm so happy because you guys are a faithful church. You're faithful to my word. You receive my word. But not only receiving, but also trusting. Meaning the things that they heard, they just cherished it. 
They loved it. They received it as the words of God. They brought it in their heart and, and thought, you know what, this is, this is to be cherished. We want God's word. We value God's word. We really want to know what God has to say on this subject or on this particular issue. We really want God's opinion. To be really frank, guys, for me, as a pastor, my job is to be as faithful to teaching this book as I can. It's not about me just giving you my ideas, my perspectives. It's not about us as a church getting all of our elders and our leadership together and voting on passages and saying, what should we do? How should we do this? How can we make it look nice and feel good and give everybody an experience? Do you know that the worship concept, the Sunday morning issues, if you look at this kind of from a social standpoint, the worship, Sunday morning gatherings went from being like a worship, quote unquote, service where you'd go and you would be served. I think it sort of followed suit of the economy and the way cultures work, where we were a service economy. Everything was about making sure your food is hot and your food is fast and you get exactly what you want. We're here to serve you, which the idea is somewhat biblical, but not entirely. But what happens is it turns people into sort of, you know, uh, you just, you, you indulge. Church is like this big smorgasbord where you just eat. And things that you don't like, you complain about. And, but what's happening today in the culture is it's not a, a worship service. They call them you know, worship experiences. Because we live in a culture that really wants experience. I mean, the iPhone, I own one. It is an experience. It's incredible. All right? I, I, I love it. It's like revolutionized my life. But what, what I'm trying to say is this. I don't want to preach my iPhone. I want to preach Jesus. So afterwards, I'll preach my iPhone. But here's what I want to say, is that the idea of an experience is it's, it's not about just trying to get an experience. Now, I, am, I want to emphasize to raise the affections of our hearts important, but we have to have something by which to affix our affections upon. Does that make sense? So here's the question. What are we affixing our affections upon? If our affections are just being... Uh, fixed onto some really cool music that really moved me, that's really shallow. Because what's going to happen when the music fades? And all is stripped away, right? I mean, what's going to happen when that takes place? You, you see what I'm saying? What's going to take place after that? But when we affix our hearts upon God's word, because we've not only received it, but because we've trusted it, we've cherished it, we've longed for it, we've been sustained by it, then hours, weeks, months, years into the future, when life gets tough, and it will get tough, I absolutely promise you that, you've got something of which to hold on to that will actually give back what it's capable of sustaining you in. It's capable. And Jesus says to his church, you guys don't have much power, but you're faithful to my word. You're faithful to my word. They received, they trusted, they loved it. The affections of their heart are really fixed on God through God's word. And to be really honest with you guys, I, I, I look at you in a lot of ways, I, th- th- I think that's you guys. I'm so stoked to be able to pastor a church, to be connected with a church where people actually love God's word. They want to know God's word. They want to be in God's word because that's what is important to Jesus. Obviously, if it wasn't, I don't think he'd say any of this. But he recognizes that these are part, this is the part of being faithful. So he commends these guys for that. The second thing is we kind of move into this. We're almost done here. He basically is going to point out uh, five different promises 
five promises that he essentially gives to them in order for them to hold on. And here's the first thing that he promises them. It has to do with justice and vindication. What I mean by this is not sort of a gloating, uh, boastful type of a vindication, whereby we're going to at some point be at some place, we're going to look at everybody who's kind of wounded us or hurt us or spoken against us and have some sort of a cocky attitude. It's not what I'm talking about. In fact, sometimes Christians are really bad at this. If, you know, you, this is one of the big things that the Christian church is oftentimes accused of, is this type of arrogance. Let me just say something. If you're the type of person that's prone to use the word sinner and call people sinner, you need to be very careful in the tone by which you use. Because some of you use the word sinner in a very derogatory tone. It's, it's your little spiritual way of putting people down and basically lifting yourself up and gloating and being arrogant over them. And it's that attitude that oftentimes the church looks at or the world looks at the church and says, I hate the church. The church is so arrogant. They're always looking down on everybody. And it's because you got a bunch of zealous people that love to just call people sinners, and they do it in a way that's so derogatory. So I want you to think about that. Because in the end, one day, there will be celebrating. Don't, don't misunderstand me. There will be celebrating. But it will be a humble celebration. It won't be focused upon the fact that we have overcome all of our enemies. It will be upon the fact that Jesus is our conqueror, that Jesus is our Lord, that Jesus is our good, gracious, gracious, loving, merciful God that rescued us. That's what it will be. There will be no gloating, no boasting whatsoever. That's why Paul says, I'm saved by grace. In other words, if you really want to understand and get into kind of Paul's head and understand this, Paul would basically say this, you're all sinners. You're all messed up. Every single one of us are totally, completely devoid of any good of trying to get God's attention to change ourselves. We don't have it. We fail. And yet God, God is gracious to help us. That's what the message is about. That's what the gospel of grace emphasizes, that God comes in and he rescues us and saves us. By grace, we have been changed. We've been saved and that's what he's basically saying. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say, they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus is saying, there's going to come a day, and this is kind of an interesting irony on this verse. I don't really have a lot of time to go into it, Isaiah 60, but in its short, it's basically this. The Jews had always felt that one day that they're the persecuted people of God, one day, all of the nations will come and bow down before them. In a very interesting irony, Jesus says, nope, that's not what's going to happen. All of you synagogue of Satan are going to come bow down at the feet of my true servants. Well, who are the true servants of God? Israel? Well, Paul would answer the question. He'd say, people that are saved by grace are not people that are religiously, outwardly doing something. But they're people that have been affected by God's grace. They've been forgiven. They've been changed. They've been transformed. And here's what he's saying. That one day, these people in this particular church, as well as universally, that have been affected, that have been impacted negatively throughout this world by throughout religious-type systems that have been abusive or uh, shunning or pushing them out. Jesus says, listen, I hold the keys of life and death, of open doors, of closed doors, and I will be the final one to say who's in, who's out. And he says, you guys will one day be brought in and everybody who's persecuted you, they will bow down before you at your feet. 
And there's a sense of justice and vindication that will one day finally take place. The second thing is this, protection. Verse 10, he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I really don't have, again, a lot of time to dissect this. We'll actually be getting into this particular verse more in the next few weeks to come after the first of the year. But in short, a lot of scholars and theologians have completely disagreed on the meaning of this verse. In short, it boils down to this of, um, you know, this hour of trial. Is this like a great or the great tribulation or is this just sort of uh, persecution kind of spreading throughout the Roman Empire? Um, personally, I think it's talking about a final day of great tribulation that will one day come. And here's what he says. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will also keep you from that hour. In other words, I think he's talking about saying this Philadelphian type church, these Philadelphian believers that are faithful to God's word, will one day be protected in the midst of or taken out of this persecution of, or I'm sorry, this judgment of God that's going to fall upon all of the earth. And um, the third thing is this, verse 11, he goes on, he says this, he says, I'm coming soon, hold fast to what you've had, so that no one may seize your crown. I think the point that he's basically saying is it has to do with comfort. He wants them to be aware of the fact that I'm coming, I'm coming for you. I will come and I will rescue, I will take you and you will be with me. Where I am, so will you be, you'll be with me. The next thing he points out, points out the fourth thing is security. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that the city had this massive earthquake that leveled it. And there were all these aftershocks that kind of came out afterwards. So as a result of a lot of the people in the city sort of migrated out in the burbs. And they bought houses outside of the city. They didn't want to live there. It was unsafe for them. They were afraid. And as a result of that, everybody was kind of afraid to go back into the city. They were kind of sitting on this fault line. All these earthquakes were happening. They didn't like going back in there. And here's what I think what Jesus is basically trying to say is that those of you that are nervous about this life and the difficulties, one day I will bring about this security, this everlasting security. You will be like columns or pillars in the house of my God. If you know anything about Greek uh, architecture, you know that a pillar was kind of the main, the main issue, the main thing. Everything was built upon these pillars. And so it's, a, it's kind of like a load-bearing wall. All right, if you're going to do home improvement, don't ever take out a load-bearing wall probably not a good idea. And I think what he's basically saying is that there will come a day that even though in your life there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of difficulty, one day I will bring you into a place of eternal security and you'll be like a pillar in the temple of God. Now let me say something real fast. This verse right here is very helpful and very insightful to again emphasize what type of literature this is. Here's why. If you are prone to just always read, especially the book of Revelation, with, with just strong wooden literalness, You'll mess up. Here's why. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, you read about the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth that come down. We're told there's no temple. There's no temple in the house of God. So what's Jesus saying, right? I mean, if you're reading this and you're just like, it's got to be literal, then what's Jesus talking about? He's either talking out of two sides of his mouth or he's talking according to sort of the apocalyptic literature that we basically said from the beginning he's talking about. What he's doing is he's using a metaphor for something that they were aware of in terms of stability and security. And he's saying, you'll be like that one day in my presence. The final thing is this. He basically talks about giving them this promise of their identity. He finishes in verse uh, 12. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. 
and on him my new name. And I think the point that Jesus is basically making here is here's this church, this group of people that have been essentially pushed out of culture, pushed out of society because of their trust and belief in Christ. They've been given a name of problem makers. They've been given a name that these are people that have denied God, believe that or not, because they trust Jesus. They're sort of blasphemous. They've been given false names. And in some ways, this has become their identity. And as a result of that, Jesus is saying, I know what your current identity has brought upon you. It has brought upon you destruction. It has brought upon you persecution. It has brought upon you oppression and pressure. And I know what that identity has brought upon you. But Jesus gives this amazing promise where he says, in that day, one day, I will bring you to myself and I will write upon you. I will identify you. I think the picture is that of either giving like a tattoo or putting some sort of a, uh, a mark, like a, they would do this to a servant or a slave, to identify them, a mark of ownership. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is that even though you have been falsely and wrongly identified in this life by something that has led to a lot of disaster and hardship for you, one day I will give you a new identity. One day you'll be home. One day you'll be with me. And that identity, you'll be identified as being longing to the Father and belonging as a citizen to this new heavens and new earth and ultimately belonging to me, Jesus. The name Jesus is so significant. The name Jesus literally means Jehovah is my Savior. Jehovah is salvation. And I think what he's saying is that for all eternity, we will be identified from that title, that Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is my Savior. I hope you know that today. I hope that you can sit here and say that Jesus is your Savior. This is the problem in this life in which we live. There is a multiplicity of saviors that are vying for our attention. Let me give you an example. If money is your Savior, then the more you have of it, the more secure you feel. This is why when somebody ever begins to talk about your money or somehow stock market drops and you lose a lot of your money, you feel like you want to die because your identity has been wrapped up in your Savior in which you've invested your life into, invested your energies into, and it's now gone. If your home is your Savior, should something happen to it, a hurricane, a flood, or volcano, and it's gone, right? You feel as if you've lost everything because that has become your identity. Our saviors will ultimately become our identity. You understand that? You have to catch this because some of us here, we might live with this mentality that our saviors might be our spouse. I know women who feel like their saviors is the ability to give childbirth, that if I could just have a child, I'll be saved. I'll have security, I will have an identity. And what I'm trying to say is even though some of these things, many of these things are very good, very good things, if they are made to become ultimate things, all of those things that we oftentimes put our energy into, put our strength towards, and find our identity from, will inevitably let us down. And we'll be identified by those things. And we will feel like we want to die. We feel as if life's no, not worth it. And what Jesus says to those who trust him, one day you will be ultimately identified by me, your Savior.
forever. You will bear that mark. You will be known as those who are redeemed of the living God. This is why Peter would say, we're not redeemed by money, not by silver, not by gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. That's why when Jesus says, my name will be placed upon you and you will be identified by my name, Jehovah as your savior, Jehovah is your salvation, you can be certain that that's eternal. That will last forever. That's the type of people we want to be. If you're here and you put your confidence, your trust in other things other than God, please know, if you haven't already figured it out, they can't deliver, they won't deliver, they will always let you down. So if you put your confidence in money, thinking that's going to help you, and then you find money doesn't help you, so you start finding other things to try to invest your time and energy into, every single thing short of God will always fail to deliver. That's why Jesus says, you guys have kept my word. You've trusted everything I've said. You've set your affection upon me. And one day, I'll put my mark upon you. You'll be mine. I'll be yours. You'll know that you're loved by me. You guys, I don't know of any other religion that says, you failed, but I'll redeem. You're unlovable, but I love. This is not a religion. This is about Jesus seeking and saving those which are broken, those that have failed and redeeming and repairing and restoring. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to God, to worship him. God's word is spoken in our hearts. Some of us now need to respond and worship God. We're going to sing to him. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings back to God because he's a gracious God. We're also going to worship God by partaking of communion. Um, We're going to be attempting to have communion set up every single week for us. Now that we are not mobile, we can just leave it there. I mean, we're not going to leave crackers there all week. You're like, this is stale. Um, We're not going to do that. We'll keep it fresh. Um, But to be able to have communion, just to kind of meet and commune with God and worship him, um, we're going to be doing that regularly just to recognize and remember the sacrifice of Christ for us. We're going to worship. It's a tip, tab it late. We had a lot of stuff to cover. If you feel like you need to leave, we're not going to force you to stay. But if you want to just stay and worship, we're going to worship with a few more songs and we'll dismiss you guys. Um, I'm going to pray. We'll give. We'll sing. Some of us maybe need to repent. Call upon God's grace. Just to know, you guys just know how great a salvation has been given to us through Christ. Just know that. I want you to know that. I want us to be a church that lives that, that feels that, that understands that our affections of our hearts are stirred, that we actually feel affection. We feel love for God. But that feeling is affixed, attached to these weighty truths that come from God's word. Okay? I'm going to pray. We'll worship and respond. Jesus, thank you for your grace, for the cross, for what you've done for us. We now give back to you our tithes, our offerings, our worship, our song, our sin. Everything we have, God, we lay at your feet. We say thank you for being such a generous, gracious, loving God.